Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Oshart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Welcome, everybody. Before we jump into things here, I would like to mention disclosures. And regarding financial disclosures, Dr. Kent does receive an honorarium for this podcast from speechtherapypd.com. Also, I receive an honorarium for the speech link, and I am a presenter for speechtherapypd.com and receive royalty payments. And I own Speech Dynamics. Neither of us have non-financial disclosures, so there we go. All right. I would like to personally welcome you to our live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com, and welcome to Diadocokinesis, DDK, Research Data and Clinical Applications. You are more than welcome to participate. Just type your question or your comment into the chat. And when appropriate, I will read it and our esteemed guest will respond. I'm Shar Beauchart, your speech language pathologist host. And my goal here is to connect and link with outstanding professionals in our field. And today is a very special episode. It is a research studies and practical strategies podcast. I'm going to say that again, research studies and practical strategies podcast where the goal is to merge the two. The intent is for practical-oriented researchers to bring research findings to light and discuss them and link the research results with practical evidence-based strategies that we can all use. And to help us do that today is Raymond D. Kent, PhD. Dr. Kent was born in Red Lodge, Montana, and received his BA degree from the University of Montana. He did graduate work at the University of Iowa, received his Master's of Arts and PhD degrees in 1969 and 1970. He did postdoctoral work in the Research Laboratory of Electronics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Currently, Dr. Kent is Professor Emeritus of Communicative Disorders at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Kent is a clinician's researcher. Of all the well-established research contributors within the field of speech-language pathology, through the years, Dr. Kent has performed high-quality, thoughtful research and also keeps his eye on what clinicians need. Personally, I've read and respected Dr. Kent's work for many years. His primary research interests include neurogenetic speech disorders in children and adults, speech development in infants and young children, procedures to assess speech intelligibility and quality, acoustic analysis of speech, and theories of speech production. In addition to writing more than 180 journal articles, chapter questions, or book chapters and reviews, he's authored numerous books. He also has been an esteemed editor of the Journal of Speech and Hearing Research and is an associate founding editor 
of Clinical Linguistics and Phonetics. Dr. Kent received the honors of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association in 1994 and was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Montreal in 1995. Apparently, those were very good years. <laughs> okay. He is a fellow of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, the Acoustical Society of America, and the International Phonetics Association. Dr. Kent has presented lectures and workshops in North America, Europe, and Asia. And now we are honored to have him here with us. And prior to the podcast, he encouraged me to call him by his first name. So welcome to the speech link, Ray. Thank you very much, Char. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank oh. you for that very kind introduction. Oh, you are amazing. And I'm so thrilled that you're here. Thank you. So My pleasure. first, first, I would like to lay some groundwork. Okay. Very recently, you and two other colleagues, Dr. Kim from Florida State University and Dr. Chen from a university in Taiwan, reviewed a massive amount of research on diadochokinesis, DDK. You wrote an article entitled, and everybody needs to know this article, Oral and Laryngeal Diadochokinesis Across the Lifespan, a scoping review of methods, reference data, and clinical applications. And lifespan here is defined as ages three to 80 years. Your 50 page plus paper has been submitted and approved. And I'm assuming it's gonna be published in the ASHA Journal of Speech Language and Hearing Research, right? Correct. All right, and congratulations by the way. And here is my first question. Like a lot of therapists, I have used DDK in my clinical analysis through the years. But you know what? I did not realize there was so much written on DDK. Did you realize that? And what was your motivation to do this research on DDK? Well, I was overwhelmed by the number of publications we discovered. Let me put in a little historic note here. In 1987, there was a paper published in the Journal of Speech and Hearing Research by Kent, Kent, and Rosenbach. And this was a paper that reviewed what we call maximum performance measures of speech production. So there are two Kents. I was one of them. My wife, who is sitting here to my left, is another one. So she and I worked together in research primarily on dysarthria. So we have been partners in research and also partners in marriage. Uh, and believe it or not, after almost 49 years of marriage, she still is interested to hear what I have to say tonight. So she, <laughs> she is sitting off to the side. Oh, I love it. I love so, it. Hello, so that was, <laughs> <laughs> So one of the tasks that we discussed in that paper was DDK, also known by other names such as alternating motion rate, sequential motion rate, buttocka, and on and on. Mm -hmm. So that was really one of the first efforts that I made to try to discover what the database was for maximum performance tasks such as DDK. Well, in the last year, I decided maybe we should revisit this issue of DDK. Mm -hmm. And I was held to do so for three major reasons. First of all, as I looked at the literature, I saw that there were diametrically opposed opinions on the value of DDK. Hmm. Uh, some okay. people published an article calling it a minefield. Someone else said they didn't recommend that DDK be used routinely in clinical assessment for things like adult 
dysarthria. And these were not cavalier statements. These were people who are highly respected and they're very thoughtful. On the other hand, there are people who are saying DDK can be a very good biomarker, a biomarker for things like neurodegenerative disease, like Parkinson's disease, childhood apraxia of speech, cerebellar ataxia. So I was interested, how can we reconcile these two very different views of the value of DDK? Another reason I wanted to do this review was I knew that there were some papers out there. I, I suspected there might be a hundred or so articles on DDK. Mm-hmm. Little did I realize we would end up discovering 360 articles published on DDK in different languages, in different specialty journals. So part of my goal was to be able to bring in the data to write to develop tables that could be used as a clinical reference and research reference. Another reason that I was interested in is I, I knew that there were applications of DDK in a variety of disorders. I didn't realize how large a variety it would be, but one of the things I wanted to do was to see, is the use of DDK tailored in any way, or should it be tailored in regard to the characteristics of a particular disease or disorder? So those are the three main motivations. And mm-hmm. yes, I was totally surprised. The reference list is so large that it cannot be published with the article. I expect to see the proofs coming in the next two weeks. So I imagine that the article will appear in JSLHR toward the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Mm-hmm. But because Great. the reference list is so extensive and it exceeds the page limit for the journal, the references will be published as a supplement. And it comes to about 62 pages just on its own. The references are 62 yes, pages? Yes, just the references. Wow. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. Well, I'm just, I'm so excited to hear all of the unique characteristics of DDK and who's doing it and why and so on. So let's start, though. You say that it is a scoping review. I've heard of a systematic review. Is that the same? Is it different? Tell me about that. It is different. A scoping review can lead to a systematic review. And the kind of thing that we were interested in doing, one of the things we wanted to do was to set the stage for a possible systematic review and data analysis. And what happens in a scoping review, this is the first time I've done one of those. I've Hmm. done a narrative review. But I was really interested in doing this when I read a paper by Munn and Associates, uh, published in BMC Medical Research Methodology. Hmm. And I'll just uh, mention the things that they said might be incorporated in a scoping review. First, it identifies the types of evidence available on the topic. Secondly, it clarifies key concepts and definitions uh, in the relevant literature. Third, it examines how research is conducted on the topic. Fourth, it identifies key factors or concepts related to this topic. Hmm. Fifth, it serves as possibly as a precursor to a systematic review. And finally, it can be used to identify and analyze knowledge gaps. So it seemed to me that a scoping review was appropriate. And it turns out that was probably a good decision because at that time, I began the thing, I didn't realize just how huge the relevant literature was. And if one attempted to do a systematic review of that literature, it is massive. And I hope that our review does a service to others who may in fact conduct a systematic review, because for one thing, we help to clarify terminology. DDK is known by several different names. 
Hmm. It also is conducted in various ways. And there are several different types of analyses that happen with DDK. So we hope that by laying all of that out, it would make the task easier for someone who now says, okay, now it's time to do a systematic review. So scoping review kind of lays out the general territory. And that's what we attempted to do with this particular article. Okay, wonderful. So I know that you went back maybe 100 years <laughs> to sort of identify, you know, where things were at that time. And you've obviously scoped the last 100 years. Have you found that there are researchers doing research on DDK and other like type of analyses? I'm going to say over the past 20 years, is that still sort of out there? Yes, it is. And you're right. DDK has a long history, probably going back to about the late 1920s when Robert West worked with DDK. So DDK is about as old as the field of speech-language pathology because academic programs in the professional academy in our field started about 100 years ago. And DDK is about the same age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But your question is very appropriate because one of the things that was striking to me was when we actually did an analysis of the number of papers on DDK published per year, there's an upswing over the, about the last 20 years. And for example, hmm. last year alone, there were over 40 papers published on DDK. Papers that in one way or another mentioned DDK. So there's wow. been a continuous increase, like a monotonic increase in the number of papers published on DDK. That also was surprising to me because I thought maybe it had stabilized there would be a plateau in the number of publications, but to the contrary, it's been increasing. I think one of the reasons for that increase is DDK is mentioned not only in the journals specific to speech-language pathology, but it's being used in journals such as biomedicine, engineering, computational neurology, neuroscience. So a number of different journals are, used, are reporting data on DDK. So it seems as though DDK has a multidisciplinary appeal and is being an increasingly larger number of specialties and disciplines. Wow. Okay, so did the speech pathologists originate DDK or did we get it from somewhere else? As applied to speech, yes, I think we can take credit for that. Of course, DDK does have a longer history. And DDK, for example, hand movements was introduced in neurology. So didacokinesis is a pretty old idea in neurology. But okay. as applied to speech, I think we can give most of the credit to Robert West back in about 1929. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he was interested to see if he could assess motor function in people who stutter. And that's why he began to use DDK. Subsequently, mm -hmm. a number of students at the University of Wisconsin did theses and dissertations on DDK. And shortly after that, it began to appear in the literature. And so that was the beginning of the publication history of DDK. Wow. Well, that's appropriate because that's where you're at. <laughs> so you're picking up from there and moving on. So let's <laughs> jump right. in. Yeah. So give me a solid definition of diadocokinesis, if you would. Dynacokinesis basically refers to alternating movements. So we can think of that as being finger movements, hand movements. In the case of speech, it usually refers to some kind of syllable repetition. So the idea is one of simple alternation. And in the case of speech, 
easiest kind of alternation to perform is simply syllable production. And of course, the standard syllable is something like ta or pa or ka, where we have a consonant released into a vowel. And that gives us the basic alternating pattern of close, open, close, open. So the idea then is that this simple repetitive action can be used to give us some idea as to the integrity of the motor system. And of course, that's where we come to the question of what is the clinical interpretation? But we can get to that later on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, you also talk about laryngeal DDK. I had never heard of that. What's that all about? Well, laryngeal DDK is the same concept, but applied to movements of the vocal folds. So what we're trying to do is to look at movements of adduction, abduction. For example, hmm. the syllable ha, as in the laugh, ha, 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 that would be an example of laryngeal DDK. Now we're interested in the person's ability to alternate adduction and abduction at the vocal folds. So it's similar to the oral DDK, but course, involves another system. Okay. Okay. All right. And is there somewhere along the line in your article, I read something about non-speech oral diadochokinesis? Yes. We can also look at alternate movements for non-speech activities or non-speech tasks that might include something like jaw movement, jaw wagging. It could be tongue movement, for example, lateral movements of the tongue. It could be tongue protrusion. So all of these classify as non-speech oral movements. And of course, there's been a long-standing interest in the degree to which non-speech movements relate to speech movements. So non-speech mm -hmm. movements can be used to make some judgments about things like cranial nerve integrity, for example, looking at tongue movements in an effort to evaluate uh, the integrity of the hypoglossal nerve, or using looking at jaw movements to determine the integrity of the trigeminal Mm hmm. Wow. And is there research on that? Yes, there is research I mean, there must on be. both of those, <laughs> right? Research on yeah. non-speech and research on speech. It seems to me that the research on non-speech activity has not flourished as much as research on speech activity. And I think we see that reflected in this multidisciplinary literature, where people from very different fields and specialties are looking at speech. And it looks as though the standard speech task, Pataka, or something like that, is the task that's most often used. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, usually, I mean, okay, it started out looking at adults and their rate and so on. And then I know that I have used DDK with children for years. Is there a difference? You know, what did you find as far as, let's just look at the normal, at the normal developing or, or yes. normal developed individuals. Let's look at children and look at adults, and then we'll move into the atypical. Certainly. Yeah. One thing we wanted to do was to try to collect the data that we could find published in different languages for different age groups, both sexes. And we tried to break those down into age groups to give us some idea what happens developmentally. The general picture is that diadochokinetic rate, and I'm talking here just about rate right now, diadochokinetic rate measured in syllables per second tends to increase with age up until about, oh, some people say nine or 10, 
Other people record increases until late adulthood. So it's rather mm. difficult to establish a clear plateau regarding the diadoc connect rate. But it's clear that very young children have slower rates and remarkably so for laryngeal DDK, where they're really much slower than the adult rate. Mm. So across languages, and we did look at several different languages, children have slower rates than adults. And of course, that's interesting from the point of view of a developmental assessment of motor function, to the extent that DDK does give us a measure of motor function, then the rate variable is something that we can use to scale developmental maturation of motor control. Okay. To me, as you're talking, I'm thinking the operative word is control, developmental control of the jaw, of the tongue, of the lips, whatever, you know, that's happening. And is that, does the word control come into that analysis? Are we looking at control? Is rate equated with control and regularity? Right. The assumption is that there is a control. And what we're trying to determine with DDK is, first of all, the rate. Now, we hope that this is a maximum performance task, meaning that we hope that the individual being examined, child, adult, whatever, is going to try to perform this task as rapidly as possible. And that's the standard instruction. Not every child understands what that means. So we have to take precaution that we're very sure the child knows what we're trying to ask him or her to do. Mm -hmm. But the control aspect is, in fact, very rapid rate. Another aspect of control is uniformity of production. And this is where we get into the quality dimension of DDK. Mm -hmm. Now, the standard measure of DDK is rate in syllables per second. But some people say we're throwing away a lot of the most valuable data. And I think they make a good point because we can also look at the quality of production and that quality is manifest in different ways. First of all, the regularity of production. It is not just syllables per second, but what is the actual duration of the individual syllables in a train? What mm-hmm. is the intensity or amplitude of the individual syllables in a train? So we can have variability both in the temporal domain and in the amplitude domain. And those can be informative regarding control. And they tend to break down in certain disorders. For example, in cerebellar ataxia in adults, we find that both the timing and the energy variability become very large. The other thing that can be done in terms of the measurement is has to do with the accuracy or quality of performance. Now, one way of doing this is actually to do a phonetic transcription of the syllables. That's pretty hard to do, but it can be done, and some people have recommended it. Another procedure is something that was recently published by Dick and Ben David. What they proposed is a five-point scale in which they determine the number of articulatory errors in the task. So they have five-point scale, and each one of those represents a certain number of errors in the task. So that's complementary information for rate. And those different kinds of measures together give us a better idea of what we're looking at in terms of motor control. So it's not just rate, but it has to do with the regularity of performance as indexed both in time and energy, but also looking at accuracy of performance. So I hope that answers your question. Okay. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that 
I could probably close my eyes and record the child and get that information that you're talking about. I'm not hearing you say much on looking at the child and seeing how they do it. Is that included anywhere? Like, are they primarily using their jaw? Is their tongue stabilized and just the front is moving and then they're stabilized and the back is moving and the lips are stabilized? Is there anything along those lines, you know, more of the visual, actually looking at their quality, the capability of that differentiation, if you will? It's a great question. And unfortunately, there's not a lot that has been done in that area. There have been very few analyses of video recordings of children or adults performing the DDT test. I think it can be informative because sometimes you can pick on aspects that reflect the difficulty of the task. You can see asymmetry in the facial structures. You can see evidence of straining, that sort of thing. So unfortunately, we have not, I think, made use of the visual information as much as we might. But as long as I'm on that topic, there is a way of getting additional visual information, and that's by doing an acoustic analysis. It's been shown that perceptual counting of syllables can be quite inaccurate. In fact, some people have recommended against just counting syllables as Mm -hmm. they are perceived or heard. And given the ease of access to acoustic displays such as Audacity these days, it's very easy to do an acoustic analysis, actually Mm -hmm. counting the number of syllables in a given interval of time. And the same display that shows, let's say, the waveform or spectrogram can be used to make determinations of variability in timing and variability in energy. So that's been the most probably intensive use of visual cues. And unfortunately, very few people have commented much on what you bring up, which is looking at video information, trying to determine from the actual visual appearance of the individual what you might learn about the DDK task. Now, in some mm-hmm. cases, I think it would be very informative. For example, a child with cerebral palsy, we can get an idea of what they're doing with respect to jaw movement. And let's say in some cases, we might try to restrain the jaw movement using a jaw block. If we think maybe the child is relying too much on jaw movement to perform the requested task, let's say, ta, 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 Mm -hmm. a jaw block enables us to fix the block in a position. Therefore, the child is going to have to rely only on the tongue. So I think it becomes very relevant then to make observations of the participation of the jaw in this task. And some individuals who have limited control of the tongue and or lips might rely very much on the jaw in order to compensate. Right, right. Jaw-driven speech? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Well, there's your next project. All right. (laughs) All right. We'll have you back. (laughs) Sounds good. Oh, boy. Okay. So do we have a handle on typical people and their rates and regulations or, you know, their control? Do we have that information as as a baseline before we move into the atypical? Do we have that? Yeah, I think we do. But I have to be very careful to say I don't think we have norms, normative data in the strict sense of the word. That is, we have not collected across the lifespan sufficient data that we can use the normal or Gaussian distribution to give us an idea of means, medians, uh, percentiles, and all the rest. We just don't have what we need to give us that kind of statistical information. So we decided that it was appropriate for us to call our tables, and we're going to publish 14 tables 
in the article when it comes out. And for example, one table will be specific to the syllable pa produced by children. How rapidly can children produce the syllable pa? But to get back to my point, what we're trying to do is to give us reference tables, not calling them norms per se, but saying these are reference tables. So we indicate for given ages what the data were across studies. And it does appear that we cannot assume that DDK is entirely insensitive to language. I say might be that some languages are faster than others. This is a difficult thing to study because there are so many variables hmm. to control. But there are indications that some languages are associated with a faster DDK rate than others. And if that is true, then unfortunately, we do not have a universal standard. We have to look at language-specific standards. My guess is that certain language families will fall pretty much into the same group. But we do have reference values. So one of the things I hope that's useful in our article when it does appear is that people will be able to say, okay, I've got an eight-year-old child. I want to have an idea of what to expect in terms of DDK rate. Now, that's speaking only for rate. Beyond that, we have to ask things about, for example, timing variability or energy variability. There, the data are not so abundant. We have a lot of work yet to do to bring that kind of information to the use of the clinician. Okay, let me clarify. So what is the energy piece? What is that represented by? Energy, if you look, for example, on audacity or waveform, you'll see that your variations in the amplitude of the waveform. So how big or small that waveform display is. And in speech production, The most intense components are the vowel components. So if we're doing a DDK task and we look at a waveform of that task, the consonant will be relatively weak in energy and the vowel will be strong in energy. So what you see is a pattern of alternation of very low energy and very high energy. Now, energy variability is manifest as variations in the height of that vowel portion. And in the case of something like cerebellar ataxia, very often we see that there's not a uniform height to those vowel components. So the waveform varies as we look across the pattern. That is interesting because it gives us an idea Mm. about things like respiratory control, phonatory control, and just overall control of the system. And by being careful in our selection of the phonetic constituents of the DDK task, we can begin to understand whether the problem of control is at one level or another. For example, is it laryngeal? Is it labial? Is it lingual? Whatever. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so we have crossed into disorders. Hmm. Give me some more information. Now, so I'm assuming that there's research out there on a variety of disorders and concerns. Yeah, tell me about those. Yes, indeed. So what we discovered looking at the DDK literature was that DDK has been studied in about 25 different disorders or conditions. And these range from disorders, speech and language disorders in children, including, of course, childhood apraxia speech, where DDK often has been proposed as a fairly distinctive indicator of motor control problems. It also uh, has been used, of course, in adult dysarthrias, and has been proposed to be a biomarker in the case of Parkinson's disease. There's been some recent work done to show that DDK may be particularly sensitive to the motor breakdown 
in people with Parkinson's disease. But it's also been used in stroke, traumatic brain injury. It's been used in individuals with oral frailty or sarcopenia. It's been used in people with psychiatric disturbances. It's been used in people with dementia. So a number of different conditions. Really? That's in one way, it's interesting to say, okay, so there is an overall clinical utility to DDK in that it has been used in these various clinical populations and seems to provide some information about motor control of speech. It also creates a problem for us because, for example, if we know that a person who performs this task can be affected by a comorbid condition like dementia, cognitive impairment, or something like a dental facial problems or oral frailty, sarcopenia, then becomes more difficult to reach a direct and clear interpretation of the DDK result because it's influenced conceptually by so many different variables that it becomes right. hard to anchor it to one specific aspect. So that yeah. creates a bit of a problem for us. So we have to be careful when we use DDK that we're not looking at a combination of comorbid conditions that are contributing to the problem. It's still a useful measure to get, I think, but it just means we have to be careful in our interpretation. And to some degree, we have to try to control for other variables as much as we can. Okay. Yeah, that's not easy. So explain to me about biomarkers. What does that exactly okay. mean in this case? So the, the standard definition of a biomarker is that it's an objective measure that relates to some normal function or a pathogenic function, or in some cases, a response to a pharmacologic treatment. The emphasis here is on the word objective. So what we're trying to do is to get something that's not just, say, a patient complaint. We're trying to get something that can be measured objectively. In much of the early literature, mm -hmm. it had to do with things like blood pressure or a blood test or something like that. Now, it has been proposed that DDK can be a biomarker. I mentioned specifically Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's. childhood apraxia mm -hmm. of speech, and maybe taxia in children or adults. The idea is that DDK is disrupted in a fashion that is characteristic of that disorder. And the disruption is of such a nature that it can be measured objectively. For example, we can measure it with acoustic analyses or with physiologic analyses, such as kinematic displays. And increasingly, the modern literature is giving us more and more information about the acoustic characteristics of EDK or about the kinematic characteristics of EDK. It requires more specialized equipment to do the physiologic or kinematic recordings. Mm -hmm. Acoustics can be done pretty easily. Most people mm -hmm. can get very easily freely downloadable software that enables them to look at things like waveforms or spectrograms. So what is now possible is an objective analysis in which we're looking at the actual speech output, which either the, say the acoustic waveform or something like a kinematic recording. So it is objective, and that means that we're not relying just on our own perceptual criteria, but now we can look at something, we can measure it, point to it, and say, this is in fact the marker that we're looking at. Now, I personally am very careful to say that something is a biomarker. I think it takes a lot of data for us to be assured that we can do that, especially when, okay. in the case of DDK, we know that it is possibly influenced by several other variables. So it's not always easy for us to say, 
uh, altered DDK performance is a biomarker of Parkinson's disease. It might be if other things are controlled. But if we're looking at an individual with hmm. Parkinson's disease, to take that example, we're often looking at someone in later years of life, 50, 60, 70. And at that point, we might have other things happening, such as changes in the oral cavity. We might begin to see dental facial problems, maybe some sarcopenia, reduced muscle strength in the oral and pharyngeal musculature. We might even see some indications of oral frailty. All of those kind of add to the picture. So I think it's intriguing that the word biomarker has been used with regard to DDK, but I think we have to be careful and say, ah, yes, we have identified the biomarker. It takes quite a bit of work for us to be able to make that assertion with confidence. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's so many variables with speech, period. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, so talk to me about Give me some specifics as far as what we can do as clinicians in this analysis. I know that there's, speaking of uh, variables, okay, what can we do to get the best indicator of a person's rate using yeah. DDK? What are some of the variables that we can try and take care of? Okay, I'm going to look at my notes to make sure that I don't skip something because I think these are developed in the article. So I hope that people who are interested in this will take a look at the article. Yes. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> it's been recommended that we use a dual protocol of words and non-words. And I think most of us have had the experience one time or another working with either a child or an adult, and we ask that person to say, Hadaka. and they just don't do well. They have a terrible time. They stumble over. Yet, if we ask the same individual to say, Buttercup, or pat a cake, they do it quite well. So sometimes just the production of nonsense syllables, as in Padaka, is not easy for an individual, but that same person can do very well with a real word performance. So I think it's a good idea to consider using both the standard nonsense syllable form of Padaka or some other variant, but also to consider a real word production polysyllabic word, such as pat cake or buttercup. And particularly with young children, that can often be very helpful in getting the desired behavior. It's also been recommended that the task be modeled by the examiner. That really is helpful because we don't know to what extent children really understand the idea. Say this as fast as you can. They might not understand that we're really trying to get at syllables being produced in rapid succession. They might not get that idea. But if we model it to them, and if we give them a practice trial, then we can usually get a better result. And the research that we summarize in our article indicates that this is good news. One practice trial, one model. That seems to be about all that's needed. And then just one task performance. Of course, you might be looking at performance for pa, 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 and then ta, 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 and ka, and whatever. But at least it appears we don't need to do repeated modeling, repeated practice, and repeated trials or tasks. It's been recommended that mere feedback is not needed. In case you've ever wondered, would it be helpful for the child or the adult to look into a mirror during the performance? And it appears that that actually degrades performance, perhaps because of the cognitive load uh, when the person is looking at himself or herself. It's like when I'm looking at Zoom, I think, oh, no, <laughs> that makes it more difficult to think of what I'm trying to say. Another thing is to use language-specific reference data as much as possible, as I indicated. 
There are indications that some languages might have an inherently faster rate than other than others, and that might be reflected in DDK rate for that particular language. Another mm-hmm. factor is the number of syllables, and it's been recommended by one of the investigators in this area that we try to get at least 12 to 15 syllables on the DDK task. Now, if we're dealing with a very young child, that can be difficult because young children, as we all know, might have a maximum performance time of only about six seconds. That doesn't support a lot of syllable productions quite different from adults where we typically have a maximum phonation time of 20 seconds. And if we use that as a gauge for the duration of a syllable train, that's a lot of syllables. For children, it might be difficult to get the target number of syllables. Some people have recommended you can get as few as three or five. But notice if we do that, then the mean becomes questionable because it's based on a very small number of observations. It's also become, becomes more difficult to make determinations of things like regularity of timing of the syllables or regularity in the amplitude or energy of the syllables. So that's a problem. In fact, Rhea Paul, in her book on language disorders in children from infants to adolescents, recommends against DDK for children younger than six years. But we do report in our article normative data, but I won't say normative, I'll say reference data, for children as young as three years. So this task has been used for as young as children as young as three years. But I think that Rhea's caution is one to bear in mind because we wanna be sure that the child has the respiratory reserve, the power to give us a sufficient number of syllables. And that becomes uh, questionable in the case of say children with cerebral palsy or children with some other source of respiratory insufficiency. But I do think it's possible to get data even from very young children. But again, we have to be careful that we model the task, give them practice, and then make a determination of what we're happy with in terms of the number of syllables actually produced in the task. Okay. And two more things quickly. It can be assessed for non-speech movements, as we already discussed. Ray, Ray, hold that thought and then do the two. Are you talking about asking a child to take in one breath and then do the syllables or the just the singles on one breath? Or can he breathe, Excellent. he or she breathe in yep. there? Because I'm absolutely Excellent point. So that's part of the idea of modeling. We want to be able to show the child that we're taking in one breath and producing the syllables on that breath. Because if the child interrupts the task to take a breath, the DDK measure is now disrupted. We can't make a measurement. So we do expect that this will be performed on one task. And that's why the maximum performance time, maximum phonation time, is an important variable because it gives us an idea of just what we can expect in terms of total duration of that syllabic sequence from that child or the adult, as the case may be. So exactly, the standard instruction, take in a deep breath, and then say these syllables as fast as you can. For very young children, sometimes it's even helpful to have some kind of visual display like toys or something like that, and to tap the toys to say, this is what we want to do, to convey the idea that we're interested in the most rapid, successive performance possible. Okay. And you're talking about pataka, or you're talking about pa-pa-pa-pa-pa? Or right. Any any of those. Any right. of those. Any DDK oh. task. So whether uh, we call it the trisyllabic DDK, that would be paraka. Some people will call that 
the sequential motion rate. So there are different names. Okay. And the sequential motion rate usually means that we have different syllable constituents in the task, like pa, ta, and ka. Whereas alternating motion rate typically means repetition of the same syllable. I say that's usually what happens, but I've seen the terms used differently in the literature. So unfortunately, nomenclature does vary from article to article. And that makes it a little bit difficult to consolidate the data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, back to that respiratory piece. I have had kids do pa, 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 pa. And, and yes. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, so maybe I just need to do a better job of instructing and, you know, giving the child a significant one breath and yes. several sounds instructions to make sure that they're not doing that. But I know I've had kids in the past where they just are having such great difficulty sustaining that airflow and generating multiple sounds. That's exactly right. And in the case like that, the diatokinetic task now reflects respiratory valving, respiratory function, rather than oral or some other function. So yeah, it's very important that we convey to the idea, convey to the child, the idea that This should all be done on one breath. Sometimes it helps to use some intervening practice like a a non-speech performance, like just lip closure. And to say, okay, take a deep breath and now just go, or jaw move, something like that. That can sometimes help to give them the idea, okay, what we want to do is take in one breath and use that breath, just that breath, to produce those movements. And then gradually to move into a more speech-like performance using something like Padaka, and then to see if that will free the child from reliance on respiratory control as opposed to oral control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, before I interrupted you, you had two more things on your list. Yeah. One of them was simply simply using non-speech activities, uh, which can be used for comparison's sake and sometimes can be used as part of the modeling process. And the last one, and this is a point that, that has been made in the literature for several years, but it still creates some confusion. Some people will say, you know, a DDK task doesn't necessarily mean that we're looking at faster articulatory movements. That is, if we actually look at the movement of the tongue or the jaw or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is moving faster in terms of velocity as we increase DDK. Because most of us, when we produce speech at a faster rate, and this is true for reading, conversational speech, or diatokinetic rate, we move the articulators over a smaller range. We become conservative, Mm -hmm. and we achieve a faster rate in part by sacrificing total displacement. This is something we do automatically as speakers. We've learned, if I want to go faster, okay, I'm not going to move so much. So what happens is, during the DDK task at a faster rate, the velocity is actually measured, but physiologic equipment may be slower than it was at a slower rate. So faster rate in DDK does not necessarily mean that there's an increase in articulatory velocity per se. That's not necessarily a problem because as I view DDK, we're really interested in the ability of a person to produce successive production units. And that really is the target of interest. And it's not to say that it's not important to look at velocity, but rather for general clinical purposes, it can be informative just to use the standard measure of DDK rate 
syllables per second, even though that's not measuring velocity of the articulatory system itself, it is looking at the person's ability to produce a rapid succession of syllables. And that does seem to be clinically informative, as in the case of childhood apraxia of speech. That seems to be a useful measure. And if we add to that DDK rate measure, something like a measure of variability, which is kind of like jitter or variability in the syllable duration, or jitter is in the, pardon me, shimmer as in the case of amplitude variability, we're getting even more information from the DDK task. And now if we add to that some measure of quality or accuracy, as in the Icton Ben David scale I mentioned, we're making much greater use of the overall task of DDK. Okay. So those so, are the recommendations. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. So are we looking at, you know, when we're doing this, we're actually sitting there with a child or even adult, I'm assuming that clarity matters or that they're getting the sounds in the correct order. What if they're juxtapositioning or they perseverate on one or just two? Yes. I mean, are, you know what I'm saying? Is that just sort of, you know, we can't count those or is that just indicative in itself? I think they are important to look at. And that's why I think it's important to look at more than DDK rate and syllables per second. Mm -hmm. I think that some index of quality or accuracy is important. Now, this has not been really standardized. Unfortunately, a lot of things about the DDK task are not standardized, although it's widely used and many clinicians do make use of DDK. I think there's a lot of variation sometimes from one individual or one clinic to another. And in order to make this the most clinically useful tool, we should standardize as much as we can. We have to allow that we have to bend the rules a little bit, particularly if we have a, an individual who simply can't perform the task without some kind of assistance. But in general, we should try to work towards standardization. At this time, the standardization does not apply to looking at those kinds of things you mentioned, where we might have some change in the quality of performance. For example, the phonetic constituents, where there might be some repetition that shouldn't be there, or there might be some change in the phonetic target. And I think that the recommendation by Icton Ben David to use this five-point scale probably is a good one. Mm -hmm. For one thing, it can be done fairly easily. It doesn't require careful phonetic transcription, which can really be difficult for a very rapid speech performance. Mm -hmm. But it does give us some idea of the accuracy of production. So those do become relevant. And in fact, sometimes I think they can be characteristic of a problem. We know, for example, in children with childhood apraxia of speech, that sometimes they're not going to be able to perform this task in accord with the phonetic targets we've given them. Right. And that same thing, same thing can happen with adult apraxia. Uh, as an example of that, Edie Strand and Associates developed the apraxia of speech reigning scale. And one of the things that they recommend be examined is that we look at the performance for alternating motion rate, that is repetition of the same syllable versus sequential motion rate, which is production of different syllables, as in pa, ta, ka. And what they recommend is if, if there's a discrepancy in performance between the AMR and the SMR, that is the alternating motion rate, and the sequential motion rate, that can be an important characteristic of a practice of speech. Hmm. But as noted in one article, sometimes that doesn't work so well because there are individuals with severe apraxia who can't do either one. 
They can't do AMR. They can't do SMR, in which case yeah. that discrepancy between AMR and SMR does not become a very useful feature in the apraxia speech rating scale. So again, we have to be flexible. We have to make some allowances that some individuals may have such severe involvement. They're not going to be able to perform the task in the way that's needed for us to use some of those kinds of measures. Mm-hmm. I hope that wasn't too wordy a reply. No, 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 that, no. Thank you for that. Wow. Okay. So what other suggestions do you have for those of us that are doing clinical analysis? Has, have we omitted anything or is there anything, any other topic well, I, I of, of applicability? I think that covers the basic issues. I think that it's helpful for people to be aware of the kinds of steps that usually help to get optimal performance. And that's why we get into issues of modeling and practice. I think it also is important for us eventually to drive toward more standardized procedures, not only of the task instructions, but also standardized methods of analysis. So that we're not just counting syllables per second, we're doing something in addition to that because that might be informative. I think it's also important that people work as much as possible to get some kind of acoustic analysis. I think the performance or the measurement of performance, just doing counting for perceived syllables doesn't work very well. And some people are using some of the devices that can use, for example, with iPad, in which you do a tap in accord with every syllable you hear. So if someone goes, pa, 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 you go, tap, 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 tap. But it's been shown that doesn't work very well at high rates of production because the ability to do manual performance sometimes falls short of the ability an individual has to do the speech performance. So sometimes we're pressing the upper limit of manual dexterity to keep in touch with the actual rate of DDK. And there's an article demonstrating Hmm. that. So I think we're better off to use some kind of acoustic analysis. Not only does it give us the capability to make a very objective measurement of DDK rate in syllables per second, it allows us to see things like variations in the duration of the syllable, that timing irregularity I mentioned. It allows us to see variations in amplitude, height variability, the energy variability I mentioned. It also enables us to make some decisions about quality of performance. For example, did the person really make a consonantal closure or was it missed? And finally, it gives us the opportunity to make a permanent record of DDK performance. So if we're seeing, say, an individual on different dates and we're trying to use DDK as a gauge of that person's speech motor performance, if we get a recording on one day, say Tuesday, and we file that away, we save it, and then the child or the adult comes back two days later, we can make a direct comparison from one graphic record to the other. So we have hard copy records or the computer record if you want to show it on the screen. So we have the ability to make direct comparisons of DDK performance from one to the other. And when we do that, I think we're preserving data rather than throwing it away. If we just listen to the number of DDK syllables uh, per second, all we're doing is getting one type of information and we're discarding what is potentially useful. Yeah. I'm not saying that all that information is necessary for every clinical application, but it can be very helpful and can draw our attention to aspects of production that can be clinically informative, that they can complete a bigger picture of assessment and sometimes can even be helpful in designing treatment programs. 
And I just might mention that, in fact, DDK has been used successfully in some treatment programs. Really? And it seems to carry over the speech. Now, I won't get into the big issue here of whether DDK is a speech task or non-speech task and whether it is fully informative of speech. DDK yeah. is a very, very simple task. It does not give us all the information that we need clinically, but it can be used in a way to provide some information that sometimes opens the door then to other assessments. So DDK is by no means task that solves every clinical problem, but it does have <laughs> oh, a utility shoot. in a circumscribed yeah. way. And in addition to having standardized procedures, we need to have a clear idea of how far DDK can be used to make clinical interpretations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it appears I, to have. Yeah, go ahead. Just going to say it appears to have value. Otherwise, it would have disappeared by now. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I was thinking that too. You know, I really like your suggestion of perhaps doing a video and maybe doing it, you know, initially, obviously, to get a baseline. And then over time, maybe after two weeks or maybe a month or so, and just to do it again. And from a therapist's perspective, I'd like to look at what the child is doing, not just hear what the child is doing, but I'd like to see if maybe there's that control piece is improving visually, you know, where there's more controlled jaw movement or yeah, more controlled jaw stabilization and support of the tongue and so on, so that I could see that as well as count exactly. and look at what they're doing. So I think that visual, just sticking it on your iPad and, you know, taking a little video and tucking it away, yeah. you know, I think also that would just be great to even show for progress, um, maybe at an IAP yeah. meeting, the before and then six months later, here's what the child is doing at a very basic level and how they've improved. So That's right. Yeah. And it can also be helpful to detect things like postural support. For some individuals who have difficulty maintaining a steady posture, sometimes we can see that the DDK task is disturbed because the person is changing posture in some way. Or we can mm -hmm. see the person might be trying to use posture in a mechanically advantageous way to assist the go. DDK task. There so you go. Those are certainly germane observations to make. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've had kids that are excessively tight here yes. trying to provide support here. And you could see that on a video. Yeah, That's right. I like it. Yeah, great. Woo, excellent. I love it. Now, I'm going to give you one final question. I call it a live question. And maybe in a minute or two or so, I just, because you've been in our field for a while and you've seen a lot of, obviously, students come and go and you've kept your finger on the pulse of what's going on. So I have a question for you, and that is, what are your thoughts about the field of speech-language pathology today? Generally very pleased to see how the field has progressed. I'm very pleased to see the way in which evidence-based practice has been embraced. And I'm happy to see that organizations like ASHA have taken strong steps in order to promote evidence-based practice. It's a big call. It requires a lot of data. It requires participation of a lot of people in order to give us what we need to do evidence-based practice. But people are taking mm -hmm. it seriously. And I think that there's a clarion call for more data. And I think that we've never seen as much of a harmony between clinicians and researchers as we do now 
in the days of evidence-based practice because right. both groups need each other. It's absolutely essential that we have mm -hmm. that communication. The other thing okay. that strikes me about the field, when I started in the field, there was hardly ever mention of something like AAC or apraxia of speech, childhood apraxia of speech. There was almost no mention of dysphagia. All of those have been added to the field since I was a student. So what we have is an increasing pressure on our training programs, our academic programs, to provide instruction in what is an expanding professional horizon. So our field of practice has been expanding. That's good. I think that's a healthy sign of a profession. But it does create challenges because now not only do we have to provide instruction and clinical experience in some of the traditional areas, fluency disorders, craniofacial, and so forth, but now we have to be able to provide good quality instruction and clinical opportunities in areas such as dysphagia, AAC, autism. It becomes a pretty difficult challenge for educational programs, and I think many of them are struggling to do that. And I think we've sometimes seen in programs that some of the more traditional topics like craniofacial disorders are shrinking in order to accommodate coursework in other areas. It's not mm -hmm. to say that the other areas aren't important, but to say we don't know what a clinician is going to do when he or she graduates because the field is so large. We know some people do almost entirely dysphagia work. Some people do almost entirely AAC. It's hard to prepare them for every conceivable professional role they're going to have. What has to happen in the professional training program is that we provide the foundation by which the clinician can adapt to professional challenges. Certainly, they have to be geared to expect continuing education. That's important. There you go. And that, I think, is probably what we're going to have to have more and more of is continuing education because the scope of practice has changed. The demands of the field have changed in so many ways because of financial considerations, as of increased burden because of sophisticated technologies, more and more. And I would just say one final word that I'm an advocate for the professional doctorate. I think that that is not for everybody, but I think it is a valuable tool by which our profession can continue to maintain its competitive position in a world where more and more people have a professional doctorate. But okay. I won't go on that soapbox here. I've done it elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. You are a wealth of information. Thank you so very much for all of your many helpful insights. And thank you for pulling all of this DDK information together. It's just, yeah, it is amazing. And I am hoping that it becomes sort of a, you know, a beginning for additional research and some really nice research that really helps clinicians. And I'm not saying, you know, that other research is not nice. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying research that's really going to be beneficial for the clinician. I'm excited about that. So well, thank, thank you, you very much, Char. And I appreciate all the people who tuned in. Yeah. And if you want to email me for any information or whatever question, my email is rdkent at okay. Lift it up higher. Lift it up you. a little higher, if you would. There, you, Can we see that? See there we go. Okay. R.D. Kent at. WISC, W-I-S-C. Okay. Dot E-D-U. All right. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. That's excellent. Well, I just, I appreciate your knowledge so much. 
and your years of dedication to our research. And truly, I have many of your articles. They're all over here to my right. <laughs> In fact, I have a bin of just Ray Kent articles. I truly do. So I appreciate you and what you've done and all your contributions in our field. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Char. I appreciate mm -hmm. all you're doing. And thank you very much for hosting this podcast. Oh, oh perfect. Well, thanks for coming on it and sharing all your information. So you know, stay put with us there, Ray. Okay. And also, I want to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast and where you, of course, not only learn practical information, you earn CEUs. And in a few days, the audio version of this episode will be available for free on all the popular podcast apps like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean, etc. So I greatly appreciate all your positive comments and your reviews and your support. And when we wrap up, just log into your speechtherapypd.com account, take the quiz, do the evaluation and print out your certificate. And I do hope that you realize how much you are appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit charboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.